Hi there, and welcome to the April 2008 Mind and Soul podcast. This month, Dr. Rob Wallace speaks at a conference run by Prime International entitled Improving Mental Health in Developing Countries, What Role Can You Play? In this talk, he looks at how you can integrate a Christian worldview into mental health practice, particularly in developing countries. You can find out more about the work of Prime at www.prime-international.org.uk. I'm tremendously privileged to be involved with Prime. The more I find out about it, the more I find how much they're doing all around the world overseas. I'm a, a very humble psychiatrist who just gets on things in Livingston, which is a transcultural experience in some ways, but perhaps not as much as going overseas. I'm, I'm just interested who, we've heard a little bit from some people who have worked overseas, who, who has worked overseas for a chunk of time? Just, just over half, but not everyone. Who is, is anyone planning to go overseas who never has been or is planning to go back at some point in the future for a chunk of time? So a few people thinking well, about it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Repeat the poll here in the afternoon. The answer is yes. <laughs> How long is a chunk of time? Well, bits and bobs. Bits and bobs. Um, one of the things, I'll just go forward a few slides. One of the things that um, I did as part of my lecture was work for three months in the, the middle of Zululand in South Africa. And it was a wonderful opportunity because it was enough medicine for me to learn something as a medical student. But it also wasn't so high tech that, I mean, I had colleagues who went to Harvard and just stood at the back of the queue and the back of the operating theatre and didn't learn anything. So, so I had an amazing time and I've, I've kept up links with the hospital there and I would, I'm planning to go back there at some point to do some teaching out there and hopefully getting involved with things like Prime, even coming today, um, allows me to, to live, I guess, in the relative luxury of Edinburgh. Um, I have to say, where, where most I, I have to say, I work in Livingstone. People at Livingstone get very protective. It's not Edinburgh, but I am very lucky that I live in Edinburgh, which is the nicest place in the UK to live at the moment. <laughs> Birmingham is also nice. <laughs> so, yes. Quick question before we go on. I'm going to talk a little bit about the divorce between. Um, psychiatry and, and faith, and we've, we've heard a little bit about um, the divorce between med medicine and faith uh, that John spoke about, you know, the division into people who study science and people who study um, humanities, but just a quick brainstorm, maybe people who are interested in oh, some ideas as to why faith and Christianity and mental health and mental illness and that sort of thing might be a particular sort of bugbear for people to, to wrestle with. Any ideas on that? Yeah, so, so people who, when they become ill, their faith tends to be a component of that. Perhaps they believe they are the Virgin Mary or something like that, and psychiatrists respond to that by saying, ah, that's just a crazy delusion. The whole lot's a crazy delusion. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. So particularly the whole area of evangelism and sharing your faith with people with mental health problems is a very controversial area. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of stigma going on, on 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 both sides, and I think you know, as you say, sometimes it's 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 the Christians who are stigmatised against, perhaps given history, perhaps fairly against professions who they perceive are going to attack their faith. I mean, Carl, Carl Jung famously said that psychiatrists are the new priests. So in the olden days, you used to go and see a priest. Now you go and see a counsellor or a psychiatrist if you want to talk about something. Yeah, my margin. Yes, so, so mental health problems equal sin, and uh, I guess one of the reasons is that perhaps they, they both happen inside your head. Um, so, you know, you're, but 
course, my faith is bigger than just my head, and my mental health is bigger than just my head as well. But both of them seem to happen in the brain, and is that where the seat of the soul is? Whereas perhaps if you've got a, a broken leg, that's less of an issue. And I think these are all very valid things. Um, stigma by the church, I think, is, is a major problem. Um, my church doesn't understand, so I will keep quiet. Um, no one else feels like this. Or the church may be saying, well, mild mental health problems are about self-centeredness, you know, perhaps a sign of backsliding, I must be a weak Christian. Or is there some kind of sin that I need to confess to get this out of my system? Um, and also, I use the term severe mental illness to talk about things like schizophrenia and bipolar. Obviously, I realize that if someone has depression, that is also severe. But from a psychiatrist's point of view, we're talking about schizophrenia, bipolar illness, those sort of things. You know, it's all about demon possession and people need releasing. So very paternalistic approaches by, by church leaders sometimes. Society is not necessarily much better. And uh, I know Elizabeth has written an article in um, the Development Mental Health magazine on, on stigma. This is the um, Royal College of Psychiatry survey. Um, uh, there was a famous Sun headline a few years ago, and uh, the, the, the Sun front page said, um, Bonkers Bruno locked up. Uh, by the evening edition, it had been changed to Sad Bruno in Mental Health, <laughs> which is slightly better, slightly better. But there was a huge outcry, even among Sun readers, so the message is getting across somewhere. But the, the kind of things that people are still saying is that um, schizophrenia and alcohol and drug addiction are seen as, as most dangerous. You know, woe betide you if you're trying to get planning permission to open a, a, a group home of some kind in a nice residential street. There's a lot of the NIMBY, not in my backyard syndrome, and I don't think that's exclusive to the, to the UK at all. Um, half the population still believes people with depression could pull themselves together. I suppose the obvious question is, if they could, why haven't they already done so? People with any mental disorder are seen as difficult to communicate with. Um, either people don't know what to say, or they want to um, rush in there and be amateur psychiatrists. And one of the things we've got on the mental health website is 10 really normal things to say, like, would you like to go to the shops? Uh, can I help you go around Sainsbury's or Tesco? Or we're going to the cinema, do you want to come? You know, you don't have to sort of say clever stuff, it's just normal stuff a lot of the time. So that's the Royal College of Psychiatrists survey. But the dream, uh, this is a lovely quote from um, a fantastic book by Liz Sace, who wrote a book about um, the, the survivor movement and stigma and citizenship among people with mental health problems. And she said, I want to be able to walk into a pub and say, I've been mentally ill, and for them to say, that's interesting, what did you experience? And I guess this very much fits in with the whole person medicine idea, which is that actually, you know, I mean, I, I get asked quite a lot as a psychiatrist, you know, if someone's being depressed, are they likely to become depressed again? And I say, well, it depends how they dealt with it. If, if their goal was to get back to their previous life, and if that was working 80 hours a week and being completely unbalanced and having all kinds of very unresolved problems from the past, then yes, they're quite very likely to become depressed again. But actually, if that period of depression perhaps allows some reflection, some therapy, um, a change of, of heart, a change of lifestyle, then I'd actually say the person can be stronger in many ways in the future after their depression. Um, and the emphasis really that it is, where are we? It is just as real as, as a broken leg. You know, these things are very severe problems to the person. The person can't snap out of it. Now, there may be perhaps more in the way of social and psychological causation than biological causation compared to, to physical health problems, but it is just as real. 
And I think one of the reasons why we get a bit confused by this, and th th this next section of the talk is my attempt at philosophy and theology. So um, please forgive me if I make broad sweeping statements, but I'm going to blame it all on this guy. That was a sweeping statement. Okay, Mr. Plato, who had this wonderful idea um, several thousand years ago that the spirit was good and wonderful and we should strive after such things and the body is evil and wicked and should be whipped into submission at most opportunities. And um, so physical illness was seen as normal, it was part of the fall of man, the breakdown of society, the natural consequence of, of living in a sinful world. And one day we'd all be transported up to heaven, the sort of beam me up out of here, Scotty sort of type of Christianity. We're going to go to heaven one day, everything's going to be perfect, no problems. And the mind and the spirit became equated, and mental illness began to equal sin. I think that's where a lot of this has been adopted by the church over the years. St. Augustine, who was brilliant about many other things, unfortunately sort of very much embraced this, this kind of idea, as have many writers since. And what that means is that we have a big debate going on in the church about the difference between good and, and bad. I'll just go back to that, that previous one. The, the idea that if you've got a mental illness, it must be related to your spirituality in some shape or form. And of course, the thing is, we know that's true in that if you are depressed, it, it, it's going to affect your faith. And if I could just make a quick plug, I'd love to plug Hazel's new book that's coming out about her recovery from postnatal depression. It's brilliant, and she's very honest about that relationship. But it's not necessarily a causative relationship or, a, or an essential relationship. They are related, but they're no more related than if I got cancer. That would make me ask a whole bunch of questions about whether or not God was good and whether he fitted in with my idea of what good was. So there is obviously a relationship there, but it's not doesn't mean to say that a person who is depressed is a bad Christian or a weak Christian. One of the things I, I love in, in Christianity is this idea about restoration and forgiveness, which, which is so important. And th that is obviously again related to depression and perhaps forgiving some things that have happened or, or coming to terms with things. But again, we should use that to inform how we practice as Christians, not talk about necessarily all of the etiology and make assumptions about the state of other people's faith. And I was thinking a bit about how this is important to uh, working overseas and working in other countries and working in different cultures. And I thought a helpful way to introduce it might be to, to think about this. Um, it's based on sort of Plato's idea that, uh, you know, it's all right to have physical illnesses here and now, but, you know, mental illnesses are, are, are wrong. It must be the ones in your spirit. And there's been a bit of a sort of history of, 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 of through Christianity as to how much healing and how much of heaven we can expect here or now. And it's a bit of a complicated slide, but let me, let me take you through it. There's a, there's a group of people who loosely call themselves evangelicals, um, people who believe that Jesus Christ died and, and rose again, and that the Holy Spirit has, has come, but perhaps not, they don't believe in the Holy Spirit quite as much as charismatic or Pentecostals. Again, I realize that's a broad, sweeping statement, but, but hear me out. What, what I'm saying is the essence, of the, the essence of the core evangelical belief is that, is that heaven is a future certainty, okay? And that there is very much a, yes, that has been achieved by the work of Jesus, but we are still here, okay? There's a group of people who would call themselves Charismatics, and by charismatics, I don't necessarily mean all, all, all the signs and wonders kind of things, but where people perceive the Holy Spirit to be working, and actually, lots of evangelicals would actually say, "Well, actually, I'm I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit," and I think you know, 
evangelicals who believe in an active Holy Spirit, I would put in this group. And there's a sense that some of the things that the Spirit brings and some of the things that we are going to see in heaven are possible here and now. So I'm talking about things like healings, miracles, words of knowledge. The more supernatural side of, 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 of Christianity is a very real possibility here and now. It's not just going to happen one day, but it can happen here or now. And then you've got another people, bunch of people who very broadly we could group under Pentecostals who would say actually that kind of stuff is a claimed certainty here and now. You can go out there, you can name it and claim it, you can insist that healings are going to happen, you can expect God to move in very dramatic and, 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 and powerful ways. And you know, we should heaven can happen now, heaven can start now. All these physical health problems can be cured by miracles, and also mental health problems can be cured by miracles as well. And I appreciate it's very difficult to put people into each of those three groups, but I hope you understand the, the three types of theology I'm talking about broadly. And of course the last one has the problem, what if you can't claim that miracle? What if you are unable for whatever reason? Does that mean that you haven't got enough faith or you need to start speaking in tongues or, so, or you haven't actually had your second blessing? Was perhaps what Pentecostals were, were, would certainly have said a few, a few decades ago. What if you can't claim it? That's got tremendous implications for how your faith and your mental health problems are going to fit together. Uh, you're not getting the healing for your mental illness, and actually it definitely makes you feel like you're a bad Christian and might actually make you depressed as a result. And just to illustrate a little bit of that, and again, this probably illustrates my poor history, if, if, if nothing else, but I was listening to a very interesting writer a while ago talking about slavery and revival and how we understand slavery and particularly particularly Negro spirituality and things like that. And the, the reason why I'm putting this in is I, I want to try and perhaps give an understanding of certainly places like Latin America and Africa and, and things like that, where perhaps places where a Christian worldview is important. In many of those places, Pentecostalism is very important and also prosperity teaching. And in the Bible times, you all know how the psalmist says, um, you know, how can I sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And, and song was tremendously important in the Old Testament. You had the psalms written often by David doing his wilderness experiences. And, and also a lot of the Negro spirituals were first written by the Negro slaves who'd been taken across to America. And they were, they were having to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. And what they were starting to do was they were, they were singing songs of hope and songs of freedom as you would do in that situation. And in the middle of that, this thing called the Azusa Street Revival happened. I don't know if you read Pentecostal history, but it's, it's a fascinating thing. A tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, people being healed, left, right and centre, and a whole bunch of things going on. And one of the things that came out of that was a link, particularly, I think, in, in Negro spirituality and in Pentecostalism, with prosperity, the idea that God has a miracle waiting for you, it's waiting to happen, it's going to come along. And a lot of that, particularly if you look in Africa at the moment, there's all these prosperity teachers and you see people driving around. And if you drive around, I've driven around Ghana, Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, I've driven around and all over the place, Bible verses, revivals, missions, that kind of thing. If we're going to go and work in those kind of countries, something of an understanding of of, of, of prosperity gospel and some of the influences and some of the ways in which a Pentecostal way of thinking can be taken to excess. I'm not saying that that is what the Bible teaches or what we would teach, I'm just saying that might be the context in that country. That has to be put into the context of the fact that I think in this country we don't see as many miracles as we see overseas. 
and we've talked a little bit about miracles overseas already, but they, they seem to happen overseas a lot more than they happen in this country. And also, as anyone, anyone who, who works overseas as, as, as a full-time missionary or, or, or church worker knows that this, that the intellectual Christianity that we seem to have in this country is really very much of a luxury and you have to be completely dependent on God's guidance and God's moving for things to happen. And I think it's an interesting tension perhaps if we're thinking about going to work overseas is that ironically as, as, as a lot of Western Christians go overseas one of the things they see a lot of is dependence on the Holy Spirit and miracles and it, it's something that perhaps is not familiar to the experience of a lot of British Christians. Um, but we've got to bear that in mind that actually a lot of that has been, as you say, taken out of context by, by the prosperity of, you know, I mean, if, if you're in a country where there's not very much food and you, you, you promise health and wealth, you're going to get followers and adherents. And I think it's important for us to think through in our heads the progression from evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal in, 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 that, kind of, in that kind of way of thinking and realising that actually you know, we all have to be charismatics. Uh, you know, the Bible is a charismatic book. I know we work that out in different ways. So I think that's why I put those, those two in there. The next slide, this is my, again, broad brush attempt at, 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 at non-Western non religions. But perhaps I can just pick out a few of the points in here. There are charismatics in every world religion. You will see Hindus speaking in tongues and doing miracles. If you go to India, it is a land of miracles. Miracles are not related to just Christians. You know, you see healings all, all over the place. And I think, you know, there's a different debate entirely about, you know, who's providing the power for those, for those miracles. But just because miracles are, you know, we, we read about Jesus doing miracles, is not necessarily going to, to perhaps hold the sway in, in, in a country where, where, where miracles are common. Um, Something, I'm just putting something in there just about karma and, and, and Hinduism and particularly wanted to mention the, the Dalit caste system, so the, the, the lowest caste in Hinduism and some of the profound socio-economic and mental health problems that happen in that system and to, to, take on the, um, to take on those kind of mental health problems is going to involve taking on the caste system in some shape or form and I think we need to be very sort of aware of that before we do that. Um, Operation Mobilization are doing some fantastic work among the, 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 the Dalit groups at the moment. My church in Edinburgh is just, just like we just essentially built and sponsoring a school among that group. And they're doing a whole bunch of very interesting things there. Um, again, my, my simple understanding of, of, of Buddhism about um, Dukla, uh, often in this country we translate it as suffering, you know, the idea in Buddhism that life is suffering. But my understanding is that actually it's much less than suffering, it's more about impermanence and this idea of, of, of reincarnation. We, we really struggle to get our heads around these terms from a Western point of view and I think to, to sort of jump in there with an assumption that oh, Buddhism equals suffering and you know this this person believes that they have, are coming back with this illness because of something they did in a previous life is a, a slightly simplistic way of looking at it. It it's probably goes some way towards understanding a world view but Depression and anxiety and mental health problems are as much part of the, the, the reincarnational thinking in Buddhism as, 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 as physical illnesses. Um, but again, that's a very simplistic understanding of Buddhism, and I, I'm not claiming to understand it fully. All I'm saying is that if we're going to go and work in a Buddhist country, we really need to listen to and, and understand Buddhists, and um, I think a lot of the ways that actually John was saying, which actually partnering around medical education is a great way in. Um, but there's so much work to be done on, on the world view. Um, 
animism and the, the, the more ancient sort of tribal tribal religions and things like that right the way through from you know trying to appease a, 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 a violent god to, to bring the rains, those very simple kind of things. And then also right throughout Africa, certainly when I was in South Africa, um, syncretism, the combining of two religions was, was, was absolutely rife. Um, I typed um, shaman into Google because I was wanting to get a picture of a witch doctor. This chap came up who I think actually appears to be a, a Hindu looking at him. But, um, <laughs> He was not a, a witch doctor, but when I was in South Africa, um, there was a local witch doctor who was nearby and um, used to do very interesting things with enemas, um, with rather dangerous substances. And people would go and see the witch doctor for a while and then come to the hospital, or they'd come to the hospital for a while and then go and see the witch doctor. And um, the, the best way around this was to um, make sure that the person living in the hut next to the witch doctor was one of the health visitors. And she sort of <laughs> brokered the transactions between the two. Um, but just because a country is nominally Christian doesn't mean that um, certainly there's a large influences of prosperity, gospel, or um, original tribal religions very much mixed, mixed in with that. And uh, just reminding myself, you know, something about asking here uh, and, and listening, you know, we have one mouth and, and two ears, so listening twice for every time we ask about things. And um, always remembering what, what Spurgeon said about uh, how do you defend the gospel, and Spurgeon said, well, how do you defend a lion? Do you let it out of its cage? Um, and one of the things I love about Prime is that it's very willing to put a whole bunch of stuff on the table and work with people from all kinds of different faiths because it has this tremendous view that actually God is sovereign and ultimately through his spirit he will work to point people to Jesus. And, and that kind of belief is there in the background and that's where the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is really important, not necessarily in our evangelism or proclamation. That has to be there as the first thing and then we work with all and speak to those who will, who will listen. So I think that's a really important thing to, to say about Prime is that it's not necessarily all about you know, being Christian, Christian, Christian. It, it's a strong belief in the sovereignty of God and that God is actually working through many of these religions, working through Muslims having visions of Jesus on the 21st night of Ramadan. What a great thing to pray for a Muslim colleague. I pray that you will have a vision of Jesus tonight. I know it's the, God, I know it's the holy night. I know it's the golden night. They love it. You pray for them to have a vision of Jesus. Absolutely brilliant. Occasionally Jesus turns up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. They specifically want to meet Jesus on the, on the, on the I think it's 21st night of, of Ramadan. So let's find out about these other, other, other faiths and other religions. Let me go forward a, a, a few slides and just um, say something, I think, about my understanding of, of, of how Jesus is working in the world and, and the importance of engaging with the models that people already have. So, for example, as a Christian, how would I address a family therapist you, you were talking about? And um, can I say things that would, would resonate with them? And I think sometimes we've got to say that we want to bring people in, into church. And once we get them into church, then they'll come into a nice Christian community. And the uh, problem is churches are too small. Um, God's got far bigger ideas than churches. And they're just buildings anyway. And I, I love this kind of idea that, that Jesus is sort of pouring his spirit into his church. And the church is having an influence within the kingdom, and the kingdom is shining a light into the city. And I very much like the idea of this, this diagram that everything goes that kind of way, rather than, you know, you need to come over here to be, to be saved, only we have the answer. It's like, well, yes, we do have the answer, but the answer's about that stuff. So, so let's shine it, let's shine it that kind of way. And um, so Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And, and this is you know, how we do it. Uh, what does Jesus say? 
how you show love one for another, by this shall all men know that, that you are my disciples. And I think we need to sort of have a, a theology which actually is about shining as much as possible. And at all things, you know, I mean, Paul also says, you know, how can they hear, how can they hear unless they have been spoken to about the good news? Fair point. We do have to talk about Jesus at some point. But let's let shine the light. And then people will actually praise your Father in heaven. That's what the Bible says. Actually, say shine the Jesus torch. It says shine your, shine your light. And part of that is the Jesus torch. And I love this quote, T.S. Eliot, The Course on the Rocks. He says, he says, when the stranger says, what is the meaning of this city? The strangers come to the visit. He says, what is the meaning of this city? Do you huddle together because you love each other? Well, what will you answer the stranger? Will you say, oh, we dwell together to make money from each other? Or, this is community. And I think as, um, as, as, as Christians, we said a little bit perhaps about you know, the, the, the prevalence and the problems of too few, too few psychiatrists and too, too many of the people with perhaps illnesses that really do need a medication approach like schizophrenia or, or bipolar illness. But actually a lot of the mental health problems in developing countries are things more like depression and anxiety. Or even if a person has got schizophrenia, it's how they are treated as a human being or how they are welcomed into society or, or, or community. And one of the really scary facts that always scared me ever since I first learned it is that the prognosis for schizophrenia is better in the developing world than in the developed. And that is amazing, and it, it's, it's scary. Yes? I just want to say I come from a small country where there's one mental hospital. So all the mad people have to be in the world because they couldn't be accommodated mm. in this one little mm. mental hospital. Definitely. You know, so Definitely. It's really a question of how you accommodate a range of behavior, be idiosyncratic or mentally ill. Definitely, definitely. The, the, the mm. Historically here, that anything that isn't okay, you lock it away. Definitely. Yeah. I'm going to say a little bit about you know how do we accommodate people with mental health problems in, in churches in my vignette this afternoon and I know some of the other problems are going to deal with that but a, a big part of it is actually about developing healthy and holistic communities and the church has got an amazing vision and mandate for, for, for doing that and I suppose one of the topics is today you know if you're going to work overseas how do you engage the local church well the short answer is help the local church do what it should be doing which is developing awesome communities where people can come to know God and, and be healed in many, 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 many different ways. And um, I was another story I heard, it was, it was New Year's Eve a couple of years ago, and this reporter was in one of the refugee camps um, somewhere on the border of one of the African countries. And it, it was New Year's Eve, and she climbed up on top of the aerial mast and looked out across the camps. And what she saw was hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of little fires and people gathered around these places, and nobody was excluded. Not everybody was speaking, not everyone was cracking the jokes. They probably had a storyteller or two scattered around each group, but everybody was included. And I thought if you compare that picture with perhaps if you were to take an infrared shot of Edinburgh or Livingston on New Year's Eve, you'd see a whole bunch of people drunk in the streets. Um, you'd see a few people gathered together in communities, and you'd see loads of individuals isolated, stuck around, living in bedsits by themselves. And it's ironic, isn't it? The refugee camps are the places of the strongest community. So so if 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 we can find perhaps in you know in most towns and cities and in all parts of the world there's isolated people and bringing them together into this community is probably going to do far more for the mental health as a whole than, than perhaps handing out specific medications which maybe the country can't afford anyway. 
Uh, what, what I wanted to say was just a little bit, picking up on your point, Elizabeth, about what is, what is biblical counselling. Um, this is, these are a few verses from Jeremiah. Um, I'll just read them out. This is what the Lord said. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when he comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. And... Um, goes on to talk about you know the heart of stone and the, and the heart of flesh but that is just a very simple illustration perhaps of, of, of what it means to, to, to be a Christian and and to be living in the Holy Spirit and also perhaps for biblical, biblical counseling might help someone be that kind of bush rather than the kind of bush at the moment one of life's little troubles comes along your roots don't go down deep enough and you get all these problems and maybe notice in that last 30 seconds I sort of changed from talking a very theological language, through to the kind of stuff, advice you might give to someone in a supermarket. You know, why is it that that red rent bill caused you problems? Well, possibly because you didn't have enough reserves or you, you, hadn't, you hadn't had good habits in your life. There's very simple advice we might give to people to help them deal with small life events. And then over here we've got this very theological language about being planted in the Holy Spirit and, you know, nourishing and drawing things in from God's Word. And if we can find ways to draw those two things together, I think that's very, very helpful. So, for example, in family therapy, we may be very happy talking about generational models and, and um, systemic and models of, of therapy as to how this generation relates to that generation and people, different people within it. If we can find Bible verses or concepts like atonement and forgiveness that we can bring into that, we may actually be able to just bring them in as words initially. Have you forgiven that person? You know, and then that may or may not lead on to a, a, a conversation around faith or forgiveness. And this, I've just put a few things up here. These are some of my favorite Bible passages about that I often use to illustrate my points when I'm working with people of often no faith or people who are half interested in Christianity. Um, Jacob wrestles God for his identity. You, you've got this contrast between the young lad, Jacob, who is in his mother's skirts and who is called deceit. God has to get it by himself. God doesn't speak to Jacob until he leaves home. He has to get him away from this overprotective environment, out into the desert. Then God speaks to him. And then Jacob realizes, um, what's that angel wrestling thing about this? I will not let you go unless you bless me. Uh, Jacob is saying to him, I need another blessing. The one I got from my father was not a valid one. It was attained by deceit. I need you to give me my true identity. And he calls him Israel. Okay. Um, Elijah's negative automatic thought might be an example of cognitive behavioural therapy. I'm the only prophet left. Help. Okay. Jump into conclusions. Uh, why is it that over six chapters of Genesis, a whole bunch of shenanigans with a silver cup that I don't understand, but it, it, there's something in there about it taking Joseph two years to forgive his brothers. So, you know, you can't just forgive someone because you're a Christian. It took Joseph two years and eight chapters or six chapters. a long time to do that. Um, the, the passage where the Israelites are forced to make bricks with, without straw. I think sometimes we can use that to empathize perhaps with people who've got so much on them and still being able to, still being asked to produce the same 
to produce the same um, results in their life. And you can use that to illustrate perhaps what it's like, you know, how you understand a bit that there's so much is being asked and still the same number of bricks are being asked for. But don't forget the bricks without store passages got a flip side because it was that story that made the Israelites leave Egypt. And we all know that the problem was not getting the Israelites out of Egypt. The problem was getting Egypt out of the Israelites. And that's why it took them 40 years to get into the Promised Land. And it was the bricks without straw passage that forced that. And I think when we begin to understand our Bible, and we can use this idea of narrative, or narratives, and I'm talking about a narrative Bible overview. The, the restoration of Peter, I love this. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Peter has just insulted all the other disciples by saying, I'll follow you even if they turn back. He's then insulted Jesus by betraying him. Jesus restores him in John 21, which we all know about, but this lovely little verse at the beginning of Acts where Peter stands up for his Pentecost sermon. Peter stood up surrounded by the 11 and then delivers his sermon. And we often forget that surrounded by the 11 bit. It's not just the restoration of Peter by Jesus, it's the restoration of Peter by the disciples to be their leader, to trust someone who has let them down, who's made them feel foolish. And if we can bring ideas like this into our therapy or into our mental health practice, I think it really brings our Christian faith alive. I'm just going to go back a few slides to finish with one more thing. A lot of this has to do with our idea about what the gospel is. Is the gospel just about a vertical relationship with God? Now, I want to show you some slides. Um, by the way, when I when I say a lot of this, um, I'm quoting people. I usually tell you when I'm quoting people. I'm going to quote Nick Land, um, who's another Christian psychiatrist, and the Joseph and Forgiveness stuff. I should um, quote Pablo Martinez, who is a Spanish psychiatrist, often spoken in this country. Um, please nick all of my stuff, okay? Um, to steal the work of one is plagiarism, to steal the work of many is research. Okay? <laughs> that is a quote by Tom Lehrer, the singer, who also said, plagiarise, don't let other people's work evade your eyes. Okay, so please nick all this stuff, steal it, spread the word around, all the illustrations, lots of them on the Mind and Soul website, on my blog, a lot of these ideas about Peter's restoration and so on. You know, there's the, nick them, steal them. In the beginning, God created man and he was physically and mentally perfect. However, he was created with certain fundamental needs which were met in the garden. After the fall, these needs were no longer automatically met. It was not automatic that those needs were met. So we started off with man with some perfect relationships. He did have this perfect spiritual relationship. But again, that's us getting excited about Plato and saying, oh, it's just about our relationship with God. Because actually whole person medicine says you've got a relationship with your body, you've got a relationship with, with nature, you were to till the ground and look after it. Other people, he said it's not good for man to be alone. He didn't say lonely, he said alone. Okay, it's not good for man to be alone. He, he made another. Had a perfect relationship with his mind, they were naked, they weren't ashamed, and a perfect relationship with work. They loved the fact that they had this task to do, so much that God gave them a helper. And this all got very messy after the chore. People were, after, after the fall, sorry, people were cut off from God. Um, our physical bodies were, were gonna, are going to die physically one day. Um, we're doing damage to the environment. Um, we, we have shame in our interpersonal relationships. We have guilt in our internal world. And, and work has become a chore, and the ground is not giving very much back. And I would actually suggest that the good news of Jesus Christ addresses all of those things. So perhaps, you know, traditional Christianity might put you there. A whole person medicine is going to bring in these two. What about all of these ones as well? 
And actually, maybe it's these ones over here where a sort of a redeemed psychiatry can begin to act. Because if the gospel, in its core sense, with the, with the cross and the resurrection, begins to address that, it spills out into all these other things. You know, we are God's healers. We are, we are God's anointed for, for, for healing. Now, he, he works through physicians, but the ones anointed to heal, Luke chapter 4, are the church and the spirit of Isaiah that was on Jesus Christ. They're the ones anointed to heal. And, and a lot of that is worked out through medicine, but primarily <coughs> it's God's mandate. Ecology, I'm not going to bang on about the green issue, but absolutely vital to, to, to a Christian who's thinking about whole person medicine. You've got to think about the green issue as well. Um, Redeemed work, what a wonderful blessing that we can say, thank God it's Monday and not thank God it's Friday. <laughs> and how we deal with, with shame and with guilt. And some of that fits in with a bit of psychiatry, the more medical end of psychiatry that's, that, that, that's part of medicine. Some of that fits in with psychology or counselling or, or social work or, or health visitoring. Some of it is definitely not part of medicine, but neither is it, is, is it, is it purely part of you know, counselling as well. There's a whole, there's a whole spectrum of things there. But how we go about addressing guilt and shame, and yes, the gospel's got answers to guilt. What does what does Galatians say? The cross, the sin was put in charge for a while to lead us to Christ. You know, sin is meant to make you feel guilty, so that you seek out Christ. But humans have a knack of producing guilt when there's no sin, and they have a a knack of producing guilt when the sin is other people's. And also sometimes the psychological techniques that we would use for addressing that can be helpful in, in, in other situations. So just because there's a psychological answer to something doesn't mean God can't use that. So all these things are going on. And if I've got time to finish with one story, will that be okay? I just want to read you, I'll tell you the story rather than read it from Scripture. I think you, most of you would know it. John chapter 5. Jesus comes to this guy who has lain by the pool of Bethsaida for 38 years. His first question, and you, you know the story, the, the, the pool bubbles. And when the pool bubbles, you're meant to jump in and get healed. And this guy has lain by the pool for 38 years, and it's never been his moment. He's never got there in time. Someone else would get him before him. Personally, I've taken this, this crutch here, and I've tripped the guy up, and then jumped in myself. But Jesus comes up to him. His first question is, do you want to get well? Harsh. <laughs> anyway, he says, don't forget the pool. Here's a mat. Uh, sorry, pick up your mat, walk off you go. Then he catches up with him at the temple a couple of days later and says, what are you doing? You need to sort out the rest of your life as well. And I think it illustrates to me perhaps the three ways that deal, we can do with mental health problems. We can take a very paternalistic approach to mental health problems, which is, here is a man, he clearly needed a miracle. You know, the pool wasn't going to work for him, he needed someone like Jesus to step in, give him a miracle. Okay? Forget the pool, just Pick up Zap, you know, you can walk now, get on with it. He, he chased him up afterwards, he went sort of running after, made sure he was okay afterwards, and came and tucked him in at night at the temple, and it's a very paternalistic approach to people. The, the other approach that some people take to mental health problems is very much the pull yourself together kind of approach. I mean, Jesus' first question was, do you want to get well? It's all, if you read it the wrong way, you can say, maybe Jesus is winding the guy up and saying, look, do you really want to get well? Is your motivation more of the issue here? I mean, come on, you've been there for 38 years. I mean, forget the benefits trap. You'd have thought by now you would have got together enough coppers to pay someone to throw you in at the right moment. I mean, you know, and you, you can read the, the, the John 5 story like that, very critical on the guy. Or you can view it as a shared partnership, which is, yes, the guy clearly needed an answer, but actually Jesus asked something of him. 
Yes, he did heal him, but he also asked him to take this first step and pick up his mat and walk. Yes, he did follow him up at the temple, but he was also very clear it was the guy's responsibility. You need to sort the rest of your life out, otherwise you will become more sick than before. And if we can have this approach of partnership, because I think in any culture you go and work in, there will, peop there will be people who will stigmatize and say, ah, people with mental health problems, it's up to them. As Christians, we've got to say, no, that wasn't Jesus' model, because he would never have come down from heaven if that was the case. There's also people who are going to say, we need to look after all these people, and we need to fix them in the same way perhaps we fix people in other branches of medicine. And there is a need to take personal responsibility for things in, in, in mental health problems particularly so with depression, anxiety, self-esteem. There are There is medical help, but particularly self-motivation self is, is, is very important and working with others. And I think if we can find that sort of balance, then we might be able to help guys like this, not only to get better, but to stay better, and perhaps to go and tell other people about Jesus as well. So I will stop, stop there. <laughs>